0: Kau mai, ki te Kia ora. Welcome to The Land of the Long White Coat. Practical knowledge and skills for the wards. I'm your host, Joshua Smith, a trainee intern in Palmerston North, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Welcome, everyone. This week, I'm saying a huge thanks to Samantha Strong. She's an old friend of mine from primary school who did some amazing work on the logo for the podcast. We wouldn't have got off the ground without you, Samantha, so I'm super grateful. Aroha nui. Check out our awesome work, everyone, Strong Art and Design, on Facebook. And I also want to say thanks to everyone listening. We've just hit 200 likes on Facebook, and I haven't really done anything yet. So thanks for that. Hopefully you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as I've enjoyed making it. And here's to many more. So, this week we're going to try and answer a really big question. How do hospitals work? How do people get into a hospital? Who stays in one department? Who moves through several? And who gets to decide? And what do all the different departments do? So, especially those ones with confusing names and acronyms like ICU and CCU and PICU, NICU, MAPU, SAPU. What's that all about? We've got a lot to cover today, so just hold on to your seatbelts, or should that be your stethoscopes? Anyway, let's get started. So, a quick overview. We're going to start off with something that no medical talk is complete without, and that's definitions and statistics. Next we're going to meet some patients, and then we're going to do a tour of the hospital, whirlwind tour, going through all the different departments and following those patients through. We're going to finish up with a summary, and then finally we're going to follow up with those patients and see how they all did. Okay, so definitions. So first up, admission is the process of someone coming into hospital. An inpatient is simply someone who has been admitted. Discharge is the opposite of admission. That's when you leave the hospital. And you could be discharged home or you could be discharged to another facility, like another hospital, for example. Follow-up. Now, this is when someone leaves the hospital but still needs attention from a medical professional. And so they get follow-up. And the most common would be to follow-up with your GP after you leave hospital. And finally, an outpatient, well, this is just the opposite of an inpatient, it's someone who gets their follow-up from the hospital itself. So outpatients might visit the hospital regularly just to check that they're doing okay. All right, that's the definitions all over with. What's next? Statistics? So just some real basic stuff from the Ministry of Health website. Hospitalization rates in New Zealand, 225 hospitalizations per 1,000 population per year. That sounds like In any given year, one in four people are admitted to hospital, which seems like a bit too much, doesn't it? Um, But of course, some people are admitted to hospital more than once. Hospitalisation rates were highest for those aged 85 years and over, maybe not surprising. And finally, Māori people are 20% more likely to be admitted to hospital than non-Māori. So have a think about why that might be the case. Alright then, let's meet some patients. So I've got 10 patients for you today, so just bear with me. My thinking here is that we've got a lot to cover today, but it might be a bit easier to remember if we can pin it to some real patients and you can follow them through the hospital. So first up, we've got Mrs. Anaru. She's a 73-year-old Maori woman who has fallen over at home onto an outstretched hand, and she's now come into ED with a deformed wrist and obvious wrist pain. Mrs. Brown, an 84-year-old lady who lives in a rest home. For the last three days, she's been short of breath had a productive cough, complaining of some chest pain and been feeling feverish. Now she has baseline dementia but some of the rest home staff have noticed that she's been more confused than usual over that time. Miss Chen is a 25 year old Chinese lady who has come into the emergency department with central abdominal pain nausea and vomiting and she does say that the pain is starting to move down into the right lower quadrant now so that's a little bit concerning. Mr Davis is 58 years old and he's come into the ED with a one hour history of central crushing chest pain. He's been sweaty and says the pain radiates down his left arm. Now he's a smoker, he's got high blood pressure, has diabetes, he's overweight and he's on a statin for his cholesterol but admits to not taking it very often. Mr Emerson is 66 years old. He's also a lifelong smoker with high blood pressure and now he was walking along the street and had a sudden onset of severe back pain collapsed, and has been brought in by ambulance. Finn is a 19-year-old fella. He's a boy racer, loves to drive around the four avenues in Christchurch as fast as possible. Tonight, he wasn't as lucky. He's hit a lamppost at about 100k an hour and has been ejected from the car. So he's come in in a really bad state. Grace is six years old, brought in by her mum, who says that for the past 24 hours, she's been hard to wake. She's been complaining of a headache and been feverish. And her mum has now noticed in the last half an hour she's developed this rash on her legs. So that sounds a bit scary, eh? Mr. Henare is a 61-year-old Maori fella. Now he's got a 10-year history of left knee pain, relieved by rest. He's got osteoarthritis and he's coming in for a total knee joint replacement. We've got this Russian lady, Mrs. Ivanovich. She's 72 years old and she's got chronic kidney disease. And finally, Miss Jones is the 30-year-old lady who is 34 weeks pregnant and has just gone into labour at home, and she's been brought into hospital. So try and keep those patients in mind as we go through the hospital today, and we'll revisit them later and see how they all did. There are basically two ways into hospital. Either you plan to come in, or you didn't. If you plan to come in, then you're probably either having a baby, or you're having a planned operation, like Mr. Henardy with his total knee joint replacement for osteoarthritis. A planned operation is more formally called elective surgery, and that's something we'll talk about in a later episode. And if you didn't plan to come in, then you come in via the emergency department, and that's where we'll start our tour today. The name says it all, the emergency department, or ED, is where you come in an emergency. Now you can think of the ED as the big iron gates of the hospital. If you want to get in, you've got to get through here first. The purpose of the ED is to identify and treat illness or injury up to the point that the patient is stable and then answer an important question do they need to be admitted or can they be safely discharged home? And if they are discharged, do they need some follow-up? Now a good example of someone who probably doesn't need to be admitted would be Mrs Anadu, a 73 year old lady with what sounds like a broken wrist probably a Collie's fracture. You should look that up if you don't know what it is. As long as she's normally mobile and otherwise well the ED team would probably decide that she is okay to go home with some good pain relief and a temporary cast, and just to come back to see the orthopaedic doctors as an outpatient later in the week. We'll talk about outpatients more later. ED is a really fascinating place that you need to get to grips with as a student, so we'll have way more on that in a later episode. Sometimes ED is called A&E, or accident and emergency, like in the UK, or ER in the US, for emergency room, or even just emerge in Canada, because they're so casual and cool. So a bit more detail. How do patients actually come into ED? To keep this really simple, I've broken it down into three pathways. Number one is the emergency call. That's 111 in New Zealand. Now this is your kind of stereotypical hospital presentation. Something bad happens, someone calls an ambulance, which brings the patient into hospital. Do you remember Mr Davis from our patient list? The guy who sounded a lot like he was having a heart attack? He came in through this pathway. He was sitting at home, had some chest pain, his wife was worried about him. She called 111, and he was brought in by the ambulance. Or maybe if he lived more rurally in the middle of the country, a helicopter would have picked him up and brought him straight to the roof of the hospital. The next way into ED is a GP referral. Think of Miss Chen, the young woman with what sounds a lot like appendicitis. She was worried about her abdominal pain, and she went to see her GP in the morning, who correctly recognised that this was a lot more serious than that, called head to ED, and arranged an ambulance to take Mrs Chen straight in. And the third way into ED is a walk-in, or self-presentation. This is when a patient decides for themselves that they're sick enough to need to come to ED. Remember Grace, the six-year-old girl with a worrying story, which hopefully you recognised as meningococcal sepsis. Her mum was at home with her, decided that things were definitely not right, and drove her into ED directly. Once the ED team has decided that a patient needs to be admitted, how do they decide which department to pass them on to? This might be quite difficult, because often they're still not sure what exactly is wrong with a patient, and therefore exactly what kind of doctor they need. In general, it's going to depend on two things. What kind of sick they are, and how sick they are. First, what kind of sick? So I want you to think of this as two big buckets that the ED doctors have to put each patient into, either medical or surgical. A medical patient is someone who is unlikely to require surgery for the presenting problem. A good example would be Mrs. Brown, the rest home resident with what sounds a lot like pneumonia. She needs fluids and antibiotics. She doesn't need surgery. In contrast, think of Miss Chen, the young lady with appendicitis. We don't know that she definitely has appendicitis, but it does seem quite likely, and the treatment for that is appendectomy, so she's a surgical patient. Of course, not every surgical patient will end up needing surgery, and we definitely don't do surgery on everyone with abdominal pain. It just means that abdominal pain could be explained by a variety of things, and several of them require surgery to fix. So that's what kind of sick. The next thing is, how sick is the patient? They could be just sick, or they could be very sick. Very sick medical patients are going to be unstable, maybe they can't breathe properly, they've got overwhelming infection, or their heart is about to give up. Think of Mr. Davis, the 58-year-old guy who sounds a lot like he's having a heart attack. He's at risk of cardiovascular collapse, and so he's very sick. A very sick surgical patient is someone who needs surgery right now, or they're going to die. Think of Mr. Emerson, the guy who was walking along the street, had sudden back pain and collapsed, and now has arrived in ED hypotensive, tachycardic, sweaty, and unresponsive. This guy has got a ruptured AAA, he's bleeding into his abdomen, and he needs surgery right now, so he's very sick. Once you've determined these two things, how sick the patient is, and what kind of sick they are, you know where to send the patient. The four most common places to go after being admitted in ED are the medical ward or the surgical ward, the intensive care unit, or the operating theatre. And it's really straightforward, Medical patients go to the ward if they're sick, or the ICU if they're very sick. Surgical patients go to the ward if they're sick, or the operating theatre if they're very sick. And they'll probably go to ICU after that. Okay, now let's follow one of our very sick patients to the next destination, which is ICU. Grace, our six-year-old girl with fever, headache, photophobia, and a non-blanching rash, was correctly identified as being at risk of meningococcal sepsis by the ED doctors. That makes her a medical, not a surgical patient, and because she's very sick, she needs to go to ICU. (music) The intensive care unit, or ICU, is a place where the sickest medical patients, like Grace, go to be kept alive and treated. It's also for post-op surgical patients who are super sick. ICU has some unique features that you need to know about. The first one is one-on-one nursing. Unlike a medical ward where there might be ten patients to one nurse, or even ED where there might be five, in ICU one nurse looks after one patient only. The reason for this is that these patients are so sick that anything could happen at any time and they need someone to keep an eye on them. ICU is the most expensive specialty by far, and heaps of money gets spent on equipment and monitoring, working as hard as possible to keep these patients alive. Most ICUs will have a central hub where all the doctors and nurses hang out from which all the patient's beds are visible. And again, this is so that they can keep an eye on these patients. What are some unique features of the patients that end up in ICU? I want you guys to remember this one concept, multiple organ failure. This is what ICU is all about. Patients with more than one organ system failing cannot be looked after anywhere else in the hospital apart from ICU. And the major organ systems that do fail are respiratory, cardiovascular, and neurological. So this could be patients who are hypoxic, due to respiratory failure, hypotensive due to heart failure, or have an altered level of consciousness, which you can kind of think of as brain failure, if you like. Now, ICU is a bit like that TV show CSI, because it's got a ton of spin-offs. The first one is CCU, or the Coronary Care Unit, also known as a cardiac ICU. This is just an ICU that specializes in treating people with cardiovascular failure. So an obvious candidate for a CCU would be our guy, Mr Davis, with the heart attack. There's also a PICU or pediatric ICU, which is ideally where Grace would go, and a NICU or neonatal ICU for newborns who aren't doing too well. And finally, there is what's called a high dependency unit or a step down unit. Now this is kind of a halfway house between the ward and ICU. That's made for looking after patients that are too sick for the ward, but not sick enough for ICU. And you can think of the SDU or the HDU as being for patients who have single organ failure, but not multi-organ failure. Alright, let's recap so far. ED and ICU. Patients arrive in ED via an emergency call, GP referral or hospital transfer, or self-referral. For every patient that arrives in the ED, the doctors and nurses have to decide whether they are sick or not sick, medical or surgical. Surgical means they might need surgery. Medical means they probably don't. Once they've decided, the patient goes to the appropriate ward or to the ICU or theater if they're very sick. ICU is a place for the sickest medical patients, post-op surgical patients who are unstable, or any patient with multiple organ failure. Oh, that was intense. Lots of emergencies and very sick patients. Let's relax a bit and look at medical and surgical patients who are a little bit less unwell, and are just going to the ward. Okay, so we were keeping it simple before by just talking about patients going straight from ED to either the medical or the surgical ward. But, most hospitals have some kind of halfway house, or purgatory, if you like, that comes between ED and the ward. This is known as mapu, or sapu, the medical... Or surgical Assessment and Planning Unit. Mapu and SAPU are all about freeing up ED beds and reducing the number of patients that are admitted to the wards. There are several situations where this might be useful. Patients who go to Mapu might stabilize after all and can be discharged without needing full admission to the ward. It's also great for patients who aren't sick enough to take up a bed on the ward but are too sick to be discharged from ED right now so they can be watched overnight and hopefully they recover and go home in the morning. It can also be a place for the patient to stay while their admission is being organised. Maybe the doctors aren't sure exactly who needs to take care of them, but don't want to leave them in ED while that's being decided. Mrs Brown, our patient with pneumonia, would probably go straight from ED to Mapu, where she'd be reassessed, and a plan would be made for where she was going to go and who was going to look after her. And Miss Chen, the young lady with appendicitis, would probably go straight from ED up to Saipu, where they'd make a plan for when she was going to have surgery, who was going to do it, and how urgently it needed to be done. Meanwhile, those beds have been freed up in ED for incoming sick patients who need the attention of the ED doctors. One more thing on Mapu and Sapu. We said earlier that one way to get to ED is a GP referral. Well, sometimes a GP referral can actually be directly to Mapu. This saves the patient going through the ED system and gets them straight to where they need to go. If Mrs Brown with pneumonia had been living at home rather than a rest home and gone to see her GP, the doctor may well have referred her directly to MAPU. Depending on which hospital you're working in, these units might just be called the MAU or the SAU for Medical or Surgical Admissions Unit. Now let's follow Mrs. Brown, who makes it successfully through ED and MAPU and is admitted to the medical ward. Medical and Surgical Inpatient Wards. These are what you probably think of when you picture a hospital in your head. It's probably where you went if you were visiting friends or family who were in hospital. I guess you could think of these as all that a hospital originally consisted of back in the day, whereas things like ED and MAPU and ICU are relatively recent additions. What are some defining features of the inpatient wards? Well, obviously these patients are less sick than in ED or in the admissions unit or in the ICU. Accordingly, there's going to be a higher patient-to-nurse ratio, as I said earlier, maybe 10 to 1. There's also a completely different model of care to ED. In ED, patients keep coming no matter what the doctors do, and they just pick up the next patient in the queue and take care of them. On the ward, the patients are all, temporarily at least, living there, so the doctors know exactly which patients are on the ward and who they're taking care of. Because they're less sick, there's no need for them to have the doctor's attention most of the time, like in ICU. Instead, a nurse can keep an eye on them for most of the day, and the doctors can come round once or maybe twice a day on what's called a ward round. And this is where all the doctors, and probably the students, that's you, will come round and check on all the patients, make sure the plan makes sense, and see how things are going. Anyway, we'll have loads more on this in a later episode on how a ward works. Here's how I think it's best to think about these wards. Imagine a small hospital, which will have two wards, one medical, and one surgical. In contrast, in a large hospital, there are lots and lots of patients with lots of different types of problems. And each of the medical and surgical wards will instead be split into subspecialty wards. So the medical ward will become a cardiology ward, a respiratory, a gastro, and a neurology ward, plus some others, and collectively referred to as internal medicine. And the surgical ward will become orthopedics, cardiothoracic and vascular, ear, nose and throat, urology, neurosurgery, and general surgery. But just note that the neurosurgery department is going to be completely separate from the neurology department, and the cardiothoracic surgery department is going to be completely separate from the cardiology department. And it just goes to show, I think, how fundamental the medical-surgical split that occurs so early in the admission process, all the way back in ED. So thinking about some of our patients and the ward, as we said, Mrs. Brown has ended up on the medical ward, where she's going to have some fluids and antibiotics and hopefully go home within the week. Ms. Chen, the young lady with appendicitis, after she's had her operation, hopefully she's going to come back to the surgical ward and recover there before going home. Mr. Davis, the guy with the heart attack, after he receives treatment and probably ends up in the coronary care unit or the cardiac ICU, is going to go to the medical ward. So as you can see, there's going to be a wide variety of patients on both the medical and the surgical ward, and so the doctors who work here need to be prepared to deal with all sorts of different things. Now let's talk about some other inpatient wards before we move on to theatre. Most hospitals, big or small, will have a separate ward for pediatrics, and that's because children just have different problems to adults and need different treatments. Another specialty which usually has its own ward, even in small hospitals, is obstetrics and gynaecology. There may be an associated delivery suite, which often has a dedicated operating theatre as well. There might also be a neonatal ICU associated, Another inpatient ward which we haven't talked about at all yet is mental health. Now this is a really complex topic that we're going to talk about in a separate episode. But generally, inpatient mental health is off-site and in a separate unit. Okay, let's talk about the operating theatre. There were several patients on our list who end up in theatre. Mr Emerson, the 66-year-old guy with the ruptured aortic aneurysm, is obviously really sick and he actually goes straight to theatre from ED. Finn, that's the 19-year-old guy who crashed his car, he also gets rushed to theatre. Mrs Chen, with appendicitis, now she also goes to theatre, but she goes straight from ED to SAPU and then to theatre within the next few hours for an emergency appendisectomy. And finally, Mr Henadi comes in for an elective total knee joint replacement, and because it's elective, he doesn't actually go to ED at all. Instead, he comes straight to the surgical ward the night before and then has surgery the following morning. The operating theatre is a really special place at the hospital. It's got its own rules and procedures that you'll get to know as a student. It can be a pretty scary place to start with, so we'll definitely do an episode on it. But for now, let's just cover the basics, eh? So, for surgery to go smoothly, several people are needed. Obviously, you need a surgeon who does the surgery. You often also need an assistant to help the surgeon. Now, this is usually a registrar, sometimes a house officer, or it might even be a medical student if you're lucky. You also need an anaesthetist, and this is a doctor who looks after the patient's physiology during general anaesthesia. You'll also have scrub nurses, now that's nurses who have trained to work in the operating theatre, and there might be other specialists in the theatre, for example if you're doing cardiopulmonary bypass you need someone called a perfusionist. Okay, that's enough on theatre for now. Where do patients go when surgery is over? In general they can't go straight back to the ward because general anesthesia is a risky business. Patients need to be observed while they're recovering from anesthesia to make sure everything's going well. Most theatres will have a nearby area called the Post-Anesthetic Care Unit or PACU for short. Now this is somewhere that the patient can be observed by the anesthetist or some anesthetic nurses to make sure that everything's going well. After that's done they can go back to the ward if everything went according to plan or if surgery didn't go quite as well and the patient's a little bit unstable they could go to ICU, or they could go to that old halfway house, the SDU or the HDU, the high dependency unit or the step-down unit. Now this is a decision for the surgeon and the anaesthetist to make. In terms of our patients, Mr Emerson with the aortic aneurysm, and Finn with the multiple trauma from his car crash, are very likely to need to go to ICU straight after theatre, no matter what happens. In contrast, for Mrs Chen with the appendicitis, and for Mr Hanade with the total knee joint replacement, expect surgery to go well, so they can probably go straight back to the ward after a brief period of observation in the PAKU. However, if there was a complication during surgery, they could go to the HDU or even to the ICU. We're almost done. There are just four more areas of the hospital I want to talk to you about briefly, and they are radiology, the cath lab, outpatients, and the short stay unit. So let's start with radiology. This is an interesting department because there are no patients here. However, it's still a really important department, and there are three major patient groups that it's important for. The first of these is ED patients. Lots of ED patients require imaging as part of their workup and diagnosis. There are several patients on our list who this would be important for. First of all, Mrs. Anaru, the lady with the Collies Fracture. Now she's going to need a wrist x-ray. Mrs. Brown, with pneumonia, is going to need a chest x-ray. Miss Chen, with suspected appendicitis, is probably going to need a CT scan of her abdomen. And Finn, the 19-year-old guy who's been in a major car crash, is probably going to need x-rays of almost his entire body to look for fractures. Usually this will involve the ED patient being moved to the radiology department to get the imaging study done. But for x-rays, it's actually possible for the radiology department to bring the x-ray machine to the ED. And this is great for patients who maybe aren't so well, like Mrs. Brown with pneumonia. The second patient group for whom radiology is important is inpatients on the ward. Again, Mrs. Brown, even after she's starting to recover, will probably need follow-up x-rays to check that things are going well. And Mr. Henare, who's coming for total knee joint replacement, is going to need x-rays of his knee after surgery to confirm that everything's in the right place. And finally, radiology is also important for outpatients. Miss Jones, the 30-year-old pregnant woman, may well have come in for an outpatient ultrasound scan during her pregnancy. Finn and Mrs Anadu, who have both got fractures, may well have to come back to the hospital in the future to get another scan to make sure their fractures are healing well. (music) Now let's talk about another important part of the hospital, the cath lab. This is a place where an interventional cardiologist provides special treatment for patients with MI. Our patient, Mr. Davis, who arrived in ED with chest pain, had an ECG which showed an ST elevation MI, and he was rushed straight to the cath lab. And there the cardiologist did something called PCI, or percutaneous coronary intervention. Basically, this is placing a stent in the coronary artery to reopen it and resupply blood to the heart muscle. The cath lab is located in radiology, and that's because to do this procedure properly, you need fluoroscopic guidance, which is basically a video version of x-ray. Now let's talk about the outpatient department. This is an area of the hospital where patients can come in to see doctors as outpatients. Essentially this is where hospital doctors get to pretend to be GPs for the day. The department consists of a large number of rooms, each of which is set up very much like a GP office, with a desk and a computer, um, an examination couch, and pretty minimal equipment. And I can think of three patients on our list who would be using the outpatient department. First of all, Mrs. Anadu, she had a collar fracture. She was sent home from ED with instructions to return in a few days' time for a fracture clinic. And that means that she comes back to see the orthopaedic surgeon on an outpatient basis just to check that everything's going well and she doesn't actually need any surgery. Mrs. Ivanovich, the Russian lady with chronic kidney disease, well, she comes into the outpatient department every few months to have a check-up with a renal doctor and make sure her disease isn't progressing too fast. And finally, Finn, the young guy with the car crash, well, he had some pretty major surgery, and so he comes back to our patients multiple times over the coming months to follow up with orthopedics and other specialties and maybe even physiotherapy for rehabilitation. (music) And finally, the last department I want to mention briefly is the short-stay unit, and this is an area for a small number of patients who plan to come to hospital but aren't getting surgery. So this is things like blood transfusions for people with chronic disease, bisphosphonate infusions for people with osteoporosis, that sort of thing. Basically, this department provides short-term procedures for patients who are otherwise stable and don't need to be admitted. All right, that's the end of our tour. Hope you managed to keep up. Let's wrap up with a quick summary, and then we'll follow up with our patients and see how they all did. There are two ways into hospital, either planned or unplanned. Planned admissions are usually childbirth or elective surgery. Unplanned admissions almost always come through ED. There are three ways to get to ED, either from an emergency call, a GP referral or hospital transfer, or a self-referral, otherwise known as a walk-in. Once a patient gets to ED, there are three questions for the doctors to answer. Does the patient need to be admitted? How sick are they? And what kind of sick are they? Medical patients who are sick will be admitted to the ward perhaps via the Medical Assessment Unit, or if they're very sick, they'll go to the ICU. Surgical patients will go to the ward via the Surgical Assessment Unit, and if they're very sick, they'll go straight to theatre and then probably to ICU. The MAU and the SAU, or MAPU-SAPU, help to improve patient flow through ED, but also reduce ward admissions, and therefore costs and risks associated with hospital stays. ICU is a place for the sickest medical patients, or unstable post-op surgical patients. It's characterised by one-to-one nursing, it's very expensive, and patients there typically have multi-organ failure, most commonly hypoxia, hypotension, or altered level of consciousness. ICU has a lot of spin-offs, including the CCU, the NICU, and the HDU. Inpatient wards. Small hospitals will have a medical and a surgical ward, plus maybe separate wards for paediatrics and obstetrics and gynaecology. Larger hospitals will split the medical and surgical wards into subspecialty wards, an important medical one being cardiology, and an important surgical one being orthopaedics. Surgery is done in a dedicated operating theatre. There's often an associated PACU, or post-anesthetic care unit, where a patient's recovery from general anaesthesia can be monitored. Patients get to theatre either straight from ED, in emergencies, via their surgical assessment unit, or from the ward, if the surgery is elective. From theatre, patients might go back to the ward if everything has gone well, or, if it's not so great, to the high dependency unit or even the ICU. And finally, other important areas of the hospital include radiology and the cath lab for MI patients, the outpatient department and the short stay unit. And we are done! Let's finish up by recapping our patients and following up to see how things went for them. Mrs. Anadu, the lady with the collie's fracture, arrived after her husband called the ambulance. She received pain relief and had her fracture casted in ED. She was judged by the doctors to be safe to go home as she was mobile and otherwise healthy. Therefore, she did not need admission, i.e. she was not sick. She came back for follow-up at the orthopaedic fracture clinic in the outpatient department a few days later to check that everything was going well, and it was. <coughs> Mrs. Brown, our rest home resident with pneumonia, was a bit more sick. She arrived via an ambulance called by the rest home staff. The ED doctors decided that she needed to be admitted. She moved to the MAU where she was reassessed by the medical team. She wasn't super sick, so she went to the medical ward and received IV antibiotics and fluids. During that time, radiology came up to the ward to do repeat chest x-rays. She did well and went home a week later. (laughs) Miss Chen, a 20-something with appendicitis. She went to see her GP with terrible abdominal pain and her clever GP recognised this was serious, called an ambulance and rung ahead to the ED to make the referral. After initial assessment in ED, she was sent to radiology for a CT abdomen, which confirmed that she had acute appendicitis. She was passed on by the ED doctors to the surgeons, who came to ED and agreed that she needed to be admitted. She went up to the SAU, where she was reassessed, and then to theatre for surgery a few hours later. It went well, and she spent 30 minutes in the PACU before heading back to the ward and was discharged two days later. Mr Davis, our guy with the MI, a heart attack. He came to ED on the helicopter as he lived rurally out of town. He went straight to the cath lab for PCI, down in the radiology department. Afterwards, he went to the CCU because MI patients are at risk of bad things happening even after treatment. Fortunately for him, things went well and he went to the medical ward after a day in the CCU. Mr Emerson, the AAA rupture, was not so lucky. After arriving in ED by ambulance, after collapsing on the street, he was taken straight to theatre by the vascular surgeons. They were able to control the bleeding and repair the aorta, and he was sent straight to ICU due to multiple organ failure secondary to his illness. Unfortunately, he never really recovered and he died the next day. Finn, the 19-year-old guy who had been driving too fast, also came in an ambulance called by a bystander. On arrival in ED, he had multiple obvious fractures of his legs and arms, and a large penetrating injury to his thorax. He received initial resuscitation in ED, portable x-rays in the department, and was then taken straight to theatre by the cardiothoracic surgeons to control the bleeding. He then went to ICU, but had to return to theatre for further surgery to repair the less urgent broken bones. Eventually, he went to the ward via the step-down unit and was discharged a month later. He had to return regularly for outpatient follow-up and was also referred for physiotherapy. Grace, the six-year-old girl, was brought to ED by her mum. The ED doctors suspected meningococcal sepsis, so she received empiric antibiotics in the ED before being moved to the ICU. There was no PICU in this hospital. There she had a lumbar puncture and blood cultures performed, which confirmed the diagnosis. She received further treatment and was eventually moved to the paediatric ward before being discharged. She made a good recovery. (laughs) Mr Hinade was the elective total knee joint replacement patient. He arrived as requested the afternoon before surgery. On the ward, the procedure was explained to him, consent was gained, and he had a discussion with the anaesthetist. He fasted overnight and had surgery as planned at 8.30 the next morning. Surgery went well, but his blood pressure was a bit low afterwards, and so he went to the SDU rather than straight to the ward. Fortunately, everything cleared up and he was discharged from the ward four days later. He made a good recovery and was back playing tennis in no time. Mrs Ivanovich was our outpatient with chronic kidney disease. She continued to see the renal doctor at the outpatient clinic every three months, and also came in once a week for dialysis on the renal ward. Eventually, she required a renal transplant, which was performed electively by a general surgeon. And finally, Miss Jones, the 30-year-old woman who went into early labour and was driven to the hospital by her husband. He had also alerted the midwife, who told them to go straight to the delivery suite. Delivery went well, however, because the baby was premature, His lungs were not developed and he wasn't breathing well. So he went to the NICU where he received CPAP for respiratory support and also pulmonary surfactant to help mature his lungs. While his mum went to the obstetric ward to recover. She was able to visit her baby regularly and fortunately he did really well. They both left three days later. (laughs) That about wraps it up. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Any questions, feedback or yarns to share, get in touch via the Facebook page that's Facebook.com forward slash land of the long white coat. We'll catch up next time. Until then, kakiji